Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. For more than a month now, Indonesian politics have been gripped by a spiralling controversy over a comment in late September by the incumbent Jakarta governor, Basuki Cahaya Panama, known as Ahok, telling a group of officials it was okay if they didn't vote for him because they had been deceived by people using a Quranic verse, Al-Maida 51, which some Muslims interpret as forbidding non-Muslims from becoming leaders. Ahok, of course, is an ethnic Chinese Indonesian and a Christian. Even before these comments, Ahok had faced a campaign against his candidature for the February 2016 elections on racist and religious grounds, although that campaign seemed to be gaining very little traction. His comments, though, have since become a rallying point for many Islamic public figures in Indonesia and for Ahok's political opponents. He is currently under investigation by the Indonesian Police for Blasphemy, an investigation many public figures have encouraged, and tens of thousands of protesters also gathered in Jakarta on 4 November calling for Ahok to be prosecuted, with another protest reportedly planned for later this month. The Ahok case thus goes to the heart of questions of religion, race and democracy in Indonesia. And joining me to discuss these issues today is Dr. Nadia Hosen, an expert in Indonesian constitutional law and Islamic studies at Monash University, who is also chair of the advisory board for the Australia-New Zealand branch of Nadatul Ulama, Indonesia's largest Islamic organisation. Nadia, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dev. Thanks for having me. Now, Nadia also has a new book chapter out on race and religion in the 2012 Jakarta gubernatorial elections, in which Ahok was the running mate of current President Joko Widodo. And this chapter is centred around the question of whether a non-Muslim or an ethnic Chinese could become president in Indonesia. Could I start by asking you, Nadia, what sort of arguments were being made against the Jokowi Ahok ticket back in 2012 that spurred you to write that chapter? At that time, Dave, many Muslim leaders were afraid that Jokowi would run for the presidential elections. So being a governor is only a stepping stone for him. And then Basuki Cahayapunama Ahok was running with him as deputy governor, would replace him automatically as a governor. Then people said that, well, if Ahok become the, the governor, then it's not really good in a sense that Jakarta is a capital city of Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. It's 90% Muslims. It is beyond their imaginations that Chinese and Christian governor in, in Jakarta. And how specifically did they attack Ahok as deputy governor candidate at the time? What specific arguments did they make to support the idea that a non-Muslim could not be deputy governor? Well, they use a Quranic verse, Al-Ma'idah 51, mm. which according to the translations of the Ministry of Religious Affairs that they use, actually that's the old translations, but we can discuss that later on, that a Muslim should not take uh, Jewish and Christians as the leaders. And when you say they, who are we talking about back in 2012? Well, we had uh, Roma Irama. Roma Irama is the king of Dangdut. <laughs> Dangdut is uh, the traditional popular type of song, yeah. And also from MUI, uh, Council of Muslim Scholars, yeah. they also issue a fatwa. That's a MUI at Jakarta level. Yeah. Issue a fatwa prohibit Muslims to vote for non-Muslims. But again, at the times for Muslims at grassroots level, uh, the impact of that fatwa was not really uh, great in a sense that they said that, well, we fought for Jokowi, right? We don't really fought for Ahok because no one knows Ahok actually at the time. People really focus on Jokowi as a mayor in Solo and moving to capital city 
in Jakarta. So then easy for Jokowi team at the time saying, well, Jokowi is a, is a Muslim. Mm. So then Quranic first Al-Maida 51 didn't really apply in that situation. So they didn't really tackle the arguments head on. They simply pointed out that as Jokowi was a Muslim, these arguments were irrelevant. Yes, but of course then they don't. They didn't stop there. They created some issues saying that Jokowi's wife was non-Muslim. And then also Jokowi's fathers, also non-Muslims, and even some questions whether Jokowi is a real Muslim or not. So some some of the groups, like FBI, the Front of Islamic Defender, also try to create that that issue, saying, "Well, we st- we still could apply this first. Okay, I mean, obviously Jokowi and Ahok won that 2012 gubernatorial yeah. election, but do you think those arguments back in 2012 had much of a, a gain, much traction? Yes. I think there was a hot issue in 2012, but then as we know that Jokowi and Ahok won the elections, in the second round, they had a landslide outcome. They won the elections against the incumbent, Fauzi Bo. But I think I argue in, the, in, in my chapter saying that people in Jakarta really focus on uh, the real practical issues that they face, that they they thought that the incumbent at the time, Fauzi Bo, failed to deliver. So they don't really... Uh, they didn't really take into account the issue of non-Muslim or uh, Chinese at the times. They focused on the real issues. And then given the track record of Jokowi, uh, when he was a major in, in Solo, there was a hope that Jakarta would be a better city under Jokowi. Okay, so you had a situation where people were focusing on the track records of the candidates uh, as leaders rather than their religious credentials. Yeah. Um, now, I'll bring you back to that later in the podcast as to whether we're still seeing that in this year's gubernatorial election. But I thought one of the interesting things you did in that chapter, looking at the influence of race and religion on leadership in Indonesia, was tracing back these debates right back to the beginnings of independence for Indonesia, when Indonesia was first drafting its constitution in 1945. And there were ti- there were efforts at the time to reserve the presidency both for a Muslim and for an indigenous person, which in the understanding of many at the time would have presumably excluded ethnic Chinese from becoming president. Can I ask, who was pushing for those sort of restrictions back in 1945 and why were they seen as important? Well, Muslim leaders at the time proposed that the requirement to become a pre- president uh, in Indonesia should be that uh, a Muslims, be- simply because they thought that we are a, a Muslim are the majority, then if we follow democracy, that means that majority votes, then uh, we should put in uh, in the in the constitutions a clear criteria that Muslims should become the president. But Sukarno, the first president of Indonesia at the time, during the constitutional debate, uh, rejected that argument saying, exactly because we believe in democracy and then we are majority here, then we don't need to put it into the constitutions. Then automatically, Muslim will become the president of Indonesia. So I think that's how Sukarno persuade, persuaded uh, uh, and convinced Muslim leader at the time that we don't need to put it into the text of the constitutions. So uh, it's like that saying whether Christians can become uh, the president of Indonesia, constitutionally speaking, yes. But practically speaking, not. That's what the argument in 1945. And the other criteria is being indigenous, as you said, Dave. At that time, I think they still they, they thought about the what happened during Dutch colonialism, that there was a divided, a society divided by a background. So, for instance, if you are Arab background or Chinese background, then you will have more chance to study in the, in the public schools, you will get more chance in economics, whereas for indigenous people, not. 
So then, then when they drafted the constitutions, they said that, well, now this is a chance to get back that power that indigenous Indonesians, they call it pribumi, that should be the criteria. That's why then, and Sukarno also uh, accepted that argument. So they rejected the, the criteria for uh, be, uh, being a Muslims, but they reje- uh, they accepted that uh, innocent president uh, at the time uh, should be indigenous. We, of course, know looking back at the first 50 years or so of history, uh, Indonesian history following independence, that you had Sukarno as president for over a decade before Suharto replaced him as an authoritarian president for 32 years from 1966 through to 1998. And of course, when Suharto fell, this was an occasion within Indonesia to revisit the constitution. And you had a process of redrafting of the constitution happening in four stages between 99 and 2002, in which the conditions to become president were also fundamentally redrafted. You had removal of the mention of the need to be an indigenous Indonesian. Instead, now a president must be a citizen by birth who's never willingly taken on the citizenship of another country, never committed treason, and who is spiritually and physically fit for office. Was the redrafting of those conditions to be president a strong matter of debate when the constitution was redrafted after the end of authoritarian rule? And were there renewed efforts as part of that debate to insert religious or racial restrictions on the presidency? There, there was not a big debate at, uh, at the time on that issue because that after, I don't know, 40, 50 years of uh, independence, then people start to, to realize and question what is indigenous Indonesian? Right? Mm. What is Pribumi anyway? Mm. Then people uh, accepted at the time that this category in the text of 1945, the original 1945 constitution, uh, no longer applicable. Because then many Indonesians now also from Arabic background, Chinese backgrounds, like for instance, we had uh, the former minister of foreign affairs, Ali Alatas, uh, even from his family name, Alatas, he's from Arabic background. And he already served in Indonesian cabinet as a minister for foreign affairs for uh, 15 or 20 years. And then people have no problem with that. So that's the real examples of people uh, more appreciate of uh, under ethnic background. And then uh, the debate on uh, the president should be physically fit, uh, triggered by Gusdur uh, Abdurrahman Wahid uh, presidency, because we know that he was blind. And then there was a, a, a big debate at the time whether uh, a person like him should fit into this job or not. So uh, at the time, again, in 1999 and 2002, no one could think of that a person like Ahok would uh, create a problem, <laughs> uh, as, as we are going to discuss. So you didn't have from large Islamic organizations at the time an effort to reserve the presidency? No, no. The, the focus for Muslim group at the time is to insert into uh, Article 29 on the obligations for Muslims to practice Sharia. But they didn't touch the article on criteria to become a president. Mm. So th- there was no effort at the time to insert that president should, should be a Muslims. Because again, as I said, they focus on Article 29. Mm. Uh, and then Muslim leaders still in the position at, uh, in 1999, 2002, that uh, we are the majority and uh, who'd become the, pre- the, the, the presidents, uh, if not Muslim, right? Yeah, no, because I guess for me, the interesting thing about that period, if we go back to the early period post-authoritarian rule, was that if we look at the selection of the first elected post-authoritarian president. You had Megawati Sukarno Putri, the daughter of founding president Sukarno, as a strong candidate because her party, PDIP, had won more than 30% in 
in the legislative elections. But you had, at the time, a coalition of Islamic parties form up seeking to prevent her from becoming president, one of their significant reasons being their rejection of a female leader on Islamic grounds. So would it be fair to say, even if there is no explicit religious restriction in the Constitution, we've nevertheless seen religious understandings of who a leader should be influence who can become president in Indonesia? Yes, but as we are all aware, politics are complicated. Mm. So uh, Megawati was the vice president and Gusdur was elected as uh, the president. Then when people tried to remove Gusdur from his positions, then there was a big dilemma for uh, uh, several Muslim leaders, right? Whether they have to follow what the Hadith, the tradition of the Prophet, said that we cannot vote or elect a woman as a leader, or whether we follow the constitutions. So then they solved the problem by saying that we did not vote for Megawati to be a president because when we remove Gusdur, she would become automatically the president. So we didn't vote, but uh, the constitutions would automatically give that give that position to to her anyway. That's how they try to to use a different word and different term to convince Muslim leaders that uh, we were not against Islamic teaching. And have we seen religious interpretations of leadership influence the presidency in other ways, or if not the presidency, sort of governors, mayors across Indonesia is who can run for office? Well, that's really an interesting question in 2016 because so much focus on constitutional debate during 1999 and 2002, it's about uh, the position of president as we discussed, right? Mm. Then if we can solve the problem at president level, then obviously all the lower positions would have no problem at all. That's our understanding. And then in some areas in Indonesia, we could find that non-Muslims being supported even by Islamic political parties, either as a governor, mayor, or deputy governor, deputy mayor. Because the product of political reform in Indonesia, one of the products was to, to allow people to create political parties based on religion. So we have Islamic political parties, we also have secular, and we also have Christian political parties. And then uh, it is interesting that we don't have the, the uh, strict coalitions in Indonesia. So then those political parties uh, from uh, secular or Islamic or Christians, quite often they nominate the same persons. And then uh, the, the packet from deputy uh, for governor or deputy governor between Christian and Muslims. And it, it happens in many provinces in Indonesia. And we didn't have any problem. Mm. So for instance, Ahok himself was elected as a mayor in Bangka Belitung, I think 2000 and seven or five yeah. Uh, Bangka Belitung we we know that the uh, majority was Muslims but uh, they voted for Ahok as a mayor at the time Jokowi is a Muslims and then uh, when he ran for a mayor in Solo then his deputy was non-Muslim and then when he was elected as a governor then he moved to Jakarta then automatically his deputy non-Muslims Rudy then become the, the mayor in Solo. And again, no fuss about that. People seem to accept. But now, uh, Ahok is different in Jakarta 2016. Yeah, and I mean, the, the example of Jokowi's deputy, Rudy, is, I think, particularly striking because Solo is a city where you have seen a lot of the, I guess, very conservative Islamic groups centred. We have seen sort of Islamic protests over time repeatedly in Solo. And yet, as you mentioned, he, he was re-elected in 2000 and 15 running in a in a direct election for mayor there 
and even Istanbul Parties like Partai Keadilan Sejahtera PKS uh, supported Jokowi and Rudy at the time and and they issue fatwa justify why non-muslim can be elected as a deputy mayor at the time. Mm. So then he, they they try to convince their supporters, their militant supporters, that it's okay that we fought for Jokowi and and Rudy, despite the fact that Rudy was non-Muslim. So in other instances, a non-Muslim candidate for mayor has not been a problem. In Jakarta in 2016, we're now seeing this massive controversy really over Ahok's candidature, which gained pace with his his comments about Al Maida 51, the Quranic verse. Before I get to why the controversy has become so large this year. Could you just take us through that Quranic verse, Al-Maida 51, what exactly it says and how prominent it has been in sort of religious interpretation of, of leadership in Indonesia? So it says that do not take Jews and Christians as awliya. That's the Arabic word. Then if we look at the translation from Ministry of Religious Affairs from 1965, to 1998, it was translated as a leader. So so when we read in full sentence, do not take Jews and Christians as your leader. Mm. Okay. But then if we look at the Quranic exegesis, the classical books, or in Indonesia we call it Kitab Kuning, yellow books, mm. uh, that read, read widely in the Islamic boarding school, Pesantren, there are many different interpretations of what Aulia means. And interestingly enough, no one the classical Muslim scholar said that Aulia means leader in that uh, verse. They said that uh, it could be uh, allies, close friends, patrons, because the context why the, uh, the, the verse was revealed at the time was after the battle of Uhud during the prophet times. So this is the context of the war. Mm. Then the way that classical Muslim scholars read that uh, verse, do not take Jews and Christians as your allies, and then you betray Muslim community. Okay. And, and it makes sense uh, 15 centuries ago during during the battle with the, with the prophet at the time. And then if we also look at English translations, again, not a single English translation uh, from Yusuf Ali, Sahih International, translate that verse as a leader. Mm. And even if you look at all the translations around the world, they do they did not translate it so why then in 1955 until 1998 the old translation of ministry of religious affairs said leaders because during sukarno time and suharto time the two leaders really try to uh, maintain the unity of indonesia so then if we translate it literally saying do not take jews and christian as your close friends it will create disharmony in society because then when people read the translation saying oh so we we cannot make friends with christians because they don't read the, the explanations in Quranic uh, tafsir, uh, exegesis, yeah? So they just retranslate it. So then, back to the, the, the debate in constitutional um, 1945 constitutions, then the, the Muslim leader at the time translated as a leader, saying that because there is no way non-Muslim could become a leader. So there's a connection between what they, they already have discussed in 1945 and what happened in 1965. But after Suharto fell down in 1998, then the Ministry of Religious Affairs changed the translations. So they uh, they put it back based on what the co- classical Muslim scholar said. So now if we read the translations, official translation of Ministry of Religious Affairs, it says that don't, do not take Jews and Christians as a close friends. 
But of course, then MUI, the Council of Muslim Scholars and FBI, the Front of Islamic Defenders, refer only to these 1955 and 1908 translations. As you've said yourself, uh, translating as close friends is, if anything, more restrictive even than translating as leaders. How much credence or effect on the conduct of everyday Muslims would you say Almeida 51 has in their in their attitudes to Christians and Jews as leaders or friends? Well, uh, there is no much different. I mean, Indonesia, I think, was known as a, as a country that tolerate uh, non-Muslims. So we had we had in the past military commander, uh, non-Muslims. A finance minister, non-Muslims. We, we we have no problem with minister from non-Muslims or even a speaker of the parliaments. Uh, Setenovanto was also non-Muslims, so Muslim can make a friends with others, and also they can take non-Muslim as leaders. And to be fair, not only in the context of Indonesia, all around the world, mm. and then even we 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 went back to the to the fourth fifth centuries. Or even 10 centuries mm. uh, during the caliphate, yeah. non-Muslims was also appointed as a governor, as a military leaders, as minister. So we we didn't have any problem with with yeah. that. Things that are written in religious texts don't necessarily have direct effects in the way people live their lives. But I mean, it is interesting that Ahok felt the need to bring up Almeida 51 in his comments to city officials, saying. Don't feel bad if you decide not to vote for me because you've been deceived by people using this Quranic verse. I mean, that suggests that uh, in 2016, uh, certainly uh, some groups were using that as an argument not yes. to not to choose him. Uh, who were the people who were what? What groups or individuals were making these religious arguments about the governorship in 2016? Well, the, the same people who 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 tried to uh, make the same argument in 2012. That they fail. So then, since that time, and then when they, they projected that Jokowi would become the president and Ahok would become the governor, was right. Mm. Then they said, uh, number one, well, this is Jakarta, mm. this is the capital city, and then now they worried that uh, because Yusuf Kala, the current vice president, is really old, uh, more than 70 years old, and who knows, in 2019, then Jokowi would take Ahok as the vice president, and after that. Ahok will become the next president. Mm. So uh, and then they said that don't don't say uh, this won't happen because it happened now already with the governor positions. So then uh, they use now systematically uh, during the uh, the Friday sermon in the mosque, during the uh, the social gathering, using social media about this Al Maida 51. And is it confined to hardline groups like the Islamic Defenders Front and say? The more Islamist parties, like the Prosperous Justice Party (PKS), or is this sort of a, a broader phenomenon in Jakarta? No, in, be- in the in the beginning, uh, that's only limited. That's why it failed. If we look at the, the survey, uh, still Ahok has a had a big chance to to win the the elections. We look at the the political survey. So then uh, they continue using the same argument, and I think because of that, Ahok mentions about in the Thousand Island Pulau Seribu. Uh, as, as you already mentioned, don't be deceived with uh, this Almaida 51, mm. which means that Ahok was aware that number one, uh, people continue using this verse, attacking him, mm. and number two, it seems to me that Ahok was aware there are many different translations and interpretations mm. that those groups did not open uh, to their followers, saying, "Well, there are this, this is a uh, this is a, a different uh, and multi explanations." They just use one versions. And this is what I think. Uh, my understanding. This is what I mean, uh, means by deceive here. 
uh, dibohongi, right? So I think I think that's the context of uh, Ahok's statement. The reaction to Ahok's comments has been very large. You have a national police investigation. Ahok himself voluntarily went into the National Criminal Detective Branch to submit for questioning. You've had sort of a protest of tens of thousands of people in Jakarta. Even sort of respected religious figures like the head of NU Said Agil Siroj refusing to rule out in an interview with Indonesia's main newsweekly tempo that Ahok's comments had amounted to blasphemy. Why do you think those comments have become such a big deal? I mean, are they particularly egregious in an Indonesian context or, or is something else going on? Well, now they switch uh, the way that they attack up Ahok. No longer they use uh, Al-Maida 51 saying that do not vote for non-Muslims. Mm. Now they say that this is blasphemy because what Ahok insult uh, our religion, uh, our holy books, right? That's why now they get more and more support. Because they said that this is no longer about invitation, this is no longer about Almeida 51, this is a blasphemy. Mm. So then this mass demonstration, this uh, all attack, and then then they want the police to put Ahok as a suspect, right? Because of that, right? So and then because of this, they switch uh, their attack now uh, into the blasphemy. Now even moderate groups who didn't buy the argument of Almeida 51 now was dragged to support this movement, saying that why, why you are silent. Well, you keep silent when our holy books get uh, insulted, right? I mean, do you think prominent Muslim leaders in Indonesia see Ahok's comments as insulting the Quran? Because you, you've had the national police chief himself highlight that Ahok said people using this verse rather than rather than speaking about the verse directly. Well, actually, we we recorded this on Tuesday today, and then today is really a big day for Indonesian police because they opened the investigations here that people can comment on on the progress and then whether they want to make a decisions to put out as a suspect uh, or, or not. So if if you interview me tomorrow, maybe my answer will be different. But back to your question, depends on whom you talk. Even and now the society was divided because of this. Muslim organization was divided. Muslim leaders was divided. Uh, the military and the police also divided because of this. If you ask, for instance, K.I. Ma'ruf Amin, who's the head of the Council of Muslim Scholars, but also a Naratul Ulama figure. Yeah. And then he said that, well, this is blasphemy. It's clear. But if you are Said Agil Siraj, from the same organization, from Naratul Ulama, but not in MUI, mm. uh, he said that Ahok's statement hurts Muslim feeling. But he didn't want to say that whether this is blasphemy or not. He avoided questions during the talk show on TV, saying that, let's the police deal with that questions. So you see that there's a different voice here. Even Kiai Isomuddin, one of the leader of Nahdlatul Ulama, publicly saying that this is not blasphemy at all. So again, whom you talk? Uh, Muhammadiyah organizations also try to be careful in making a public statement about this. But if you ask the former chairman of Muhammadiyah, Din Samsudin, then clearly he broadcast a, a, a message through social media saying it is a blasphemy. But if you ask Safi Ma'arif, another former general chairman of Muhammadiyah, and he said not. If you ask Amin Rais, another former general chairman of Muhammadiyah, and he said yes, this is blasphemy. So in the past, if we got a problem, if Indonesia got a problem, as long as Muhammadiyah and Nahdlatul Ulama, the two largest Islamic organizations, can reach an agreement, problem solved. So even in non-Islamic issues like a tax amnesty, when Jokowi got attacked on his program on tax amnesty, even after the parliament passed the, the law, 
people still attack Jokowi in the, the parliament and then Jokowi visited Muhammadiyah and Hatul Ulama and both Islam organizations say yes we support tax amnesty problem solved but when Jokowi now visited Nahdlatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah on on this issue on Ahok issues problem still there because as I said even in Nahdlatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah they are all divided are these divisions within those two Islamic organizations simply matters of difference of personal opinion between leaders or, or is this reflecting different currents within those organizations different interests uh, could be both take example of what happened in in Nahdlatul Ulama last year they organized they call it a muktamar it's like a national congress and then some kiai some uh, traditional muslim leaders like uh, Hasim Muzadi Afifuddin Muhajir Salahuddin Wahid they were against the, the result of the the national congress they even took the result to the court but they failed so they still could not accept the current leaders of Nahdlatul Ulama Maruf Amin and Said Agil Siraj so when Said Agil Siraj tried to give a different voice to maintain that uh, a distance with the with the problem and then uh, he got attacked from this group from Hasim Muzadi and uh, Salahuddin Wahid Even when Jokowi visited Nahdlatul Ulama headquarters after 4th of November mass demonstrations, and uh, Salahuddin Wahid, a brother of Abdul Wahid Gusdur, and also now the chair of Tebu Ireng Pondok Pesantren uh, Islamic Boarding Schools, he attacked Jokowi and Nahdlatul Ulama about that. So I think that's how it's, it's, it's divided because of their own political interests within the organization itself, yeah. and also because of their different interpretation whether this is blessed for me or not. So you do have a dynamic that. If, say, a leader like Sayyid Agil Siraj came out too strongly against the idea that this was blasphemy, it would leave him open to attack by his political opponents within Nadatul Ulama. Yes. But I guess another interpretation or maybe another possible dimension of this is we saw in that interview with Sayyid Agil Siraj in Tempo magazine, I think it was headlined something along the lines of him saying the President Jokowi should not only come and consult us during crisis situations. Could you also see Nadatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah withholding strong statements against seeing this as blasphemy as reflecting their interest in having a greater say in the Jokowi government and more broadly in having a greater say in the way politics is and public affairs are, are run in Indonesia of making sure that, that their voice remains relevant? Jokowi was elected from secular political party. And then, although he's a Muslim and a real Muslim, <laughs> but he didn't have the root of Islamic tradition. Right? So then, when both Nadhatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah leaders criticized the way that Jokowi handled these problems, I think that because something is missing between Jokowi and those uh, Muslim uh, leaders, the way that Muslim leaders in Nadhatul Ulama uh, describe the, the case is like that when the car broke down, then Jokowi could not push the car by himself and they visited us. He wanted to get help uh, to push the car. But then when the car was okay, then they left us. He, he just left us. and So that's the, the, the impressions. So now I think Jokowi, this is a lesson for, for Jokowi, uh, that he should open communications with Muhammad and ulama, not only during the crisis, mm. but I can understand from Jokowi's perspective because he's a president. He's a president for everyone. Nahdlatul ulama leaders said that we don't have minister from Nahdlatul ulama. Jokowi said, I already give you seven. 
but from uh, political parties affiliated with Nahdlatul Ulama. But Nahdlatul Ulama said, "Well, that's not from that's not us." Muhammadiyah leader said, "No one from us." And now that's why then now they uh, Jokowi give one a minister of national education to Muhammadiyah, right? Yeah. So you could not separate politics and Islam organization in Indonesia. Okay. You know, I, I think you're outlining there, it's fair to say these organizations have an interest in influencing public affairs, in, in influencing politics quite directly, in, including desiring those public appointments. What about if we link the AHOC case to political parties in general and the, the context you've foreshadowed of in 2014, Jokowi went from Jakarta governor to president, and many would see each of the candidates in the Jakarta gubernatorial election this time around as potential, at least vice presidential candidates in 2019. Uh, to what extent do the attacks on Ahok now reflect political parties' interests in disabling him as a candidate for the 2019 elections as well? The other two candidates for these Jakarta elections, Agus Yudhoyono, is the son of former presidents, so from Democrat political party and PKB Partai Kebangkitan Bangsa and PPP Partai Persatuan Pembangunan those are Nahdlatul Ulama political parties supported Agus Yudhoyono yeah. then we also have Anis Basudan he's a good man but supported by now PKS and also Gerindra mm. Prabowo political parties as, as we know that Jokowi defeated Prabowo in the 2014 elections so this is like like a warming up Uh, like a introduction for 2019 presidential elections mm. and also we didn't only see this as a as a battle f- uh, between Ahok Agus Yudhoyono and Anis Basudan mm. uh, this is also battle between uh, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono Prabowo and Jokowi uh, and Megawati uh, for 2019 okay and i mean have we seen explicit comments from Anis Baswedan and Agus Yudhoyono about this case well i think i tweeted this <laughs> that I refer to what John McCain said uh, during Obama f- elections. So when John McCain supporters said that Obama was a Muslim, was an Arab, and then McCain intervened saying, no ma'am, he's a decent citizen of America, he's not Arab, he's not Muslim. So he tried to correct what his f- uh, follower said. But in the case of Anis Basudan and Agus Yudhoyono, I was a bit disappointed. I think the problem could be solved at the time after Ahok made a comment. If Anis and Agus Yudhoyono and Ahok, for instance, make a press conference together and saying that, well, you're wrong, this is total blasphemy, it has nothing to do with that, so let's move on. Let's focus on the on the program. Let's do the right thing. But Anis Basudan made a statement uh, criticizing Ahok. Agus Yudhoyono was silent on that. So it's like that they, they, they knew this is their chance. And, and then even when I refer to John uh, McCain's case, Anis and Agus Yudhoyono supporters said to me, well, why should we follow John McCain? He lost in the election, right? <laughs> so, so, so they said that, well, we just want, we just wait and see what happened with Ahok, and then after that, they can take benefit. How do you think this is going to pan out? I mean, you mentioned the police are publicly presenting their case against Ahok today in Jakarta, so obviously that's going to have significant bearing, but... Is this something that Ahok is going to be able to move past, or, or how do you how do you see this? It's, uh, it's 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 difficult to predict what the police would say. So scenario number one: if Ahok was a suspect, then according to the law, he still could campaign as a candidate, right? Uh, it will not stop him. That means that uh, those who said that this is blasphemy, they will not stop because their target 
it actually if uh, for Ahok to cancel his nomination, right? Uh, scenario number two, if Ahok was not a suspect, then this uh, create a, a third mass demonstration uh, that they set that on, on the 25th. They threatened to have five million people surrounded uh, the police and then Jakarta and us. And then even some of them said that if the police could not handle this matter, uh, we'll do it our own way. We are going to kill uh, Ahok, for instance. We're going to arrest him and kill him. So now the nation is in dilemma. On one hand, if we want to maintain rule of law, then the state and the police should not bow to the pressure. So whether Ahok will become a suspect or not, they should do it by law. Right? But then another school of thought said that, well, forget rule of law for a moment. We want to maintain the unity of Indonesia. Now the problem is not only in Jakarta, because in other uh, uh, locations, in other areas, now they they started to together the, the mass, and then uh, they really want to go to Jakarta. So this is no longer a local problem. This is a national problem, and then the nation will be divided. So why, whether it is worth it or not, to to save this one guy for the sake of unity, let's sacrifice him. Let's put him into jail. So that's what another school of thought. But then if we follow the rule of law approach from the first group saying that, well, just uh, exactly because we want to maintain our national unity. And if we cannot have a rule of law, then it's become anarchy. Right? Democracy without a uh, rule of law would be anarchy. Uh, and then it will become a bad precedent. Then in the future, if there will be another situations, then they will bow to the pressure. From, from from people and and that's not good for for Indonesia, so that's the dilemma now. Whichever that Jokowi or or the national police chose uh, would create a big big impact. Well, I, I was thinking of maybe a political solutions because that's Indonesian nature. Try to to maintain the harmony, try to 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 have a win-win solutions. Maybe Jokowi would ask Ahok to cancel his nominations, and then Indonesia calling you Ahok. That we want, uh, I want you to become the minister, for instance, or ambassador. Then perhaps this is a political so- solutions. I refer to Ahok interview uh, several days ago that Ahok said that somebody asked me to to resign from my candidacy, but I said no. I'm not sure whether it was a joke or not, but I think Ahok himself said stated clearly, uh, it's better that they put me in, in jail rather than for me to cancel my nominations. So again, I don't have the magic solution right now. My personal position is that we have to maintain rule of law. In Indonesia, we call it NKRI Harga Mati, the national, what you call it, national... National unitary or unitary state is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. Uh, but what does it mean? Uh, in the past, it means that we we don't want to become an Islamic t- state, we don't want to become a communist party, a communist state. Uh, but I think now, uh, Indonesia needs to, to learn more deeper from that statement So if we want to maintain, or if we said that non-negotiable, this is national NKRI uh, unitary state, which means that we also have to follow constitution. We have to also to follow uh, a rule of law mm. because that's embedded into this statement, right? Yeah. Uh, so NKRI harga mati, non-negotiable means, well, constitution, rule of law, non-negotiable. I mean, if you did have the sort of political solution you've foreshadowed where Jokowi might offer a ministerial post to Ahok, do you think that would 
embolden the, the Ahok's opponents to oppose the next non-Muslim or ethnic Chinese Indonesian who, yes. who ran for an elected office. Yes, that's 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 what I'm afraid of. So I'm not suggesting Jokowi to appoint him as minister, but I'm just saying, well, maybe he's thinking of political solution, political compromise. Uh, what I heard that many uh, province that uh, non-Muslims are the majority, like uh, Papua, uh, Manado, Bali, they said that, well, this is a real test for uh, Bineka Tunggal Ika, unity in diversity. If Jokowi bow to the pressure, then find a, a political compromise or a, even a, a, or agree Ahok become a suspect, for instance, then they said that we have a self-determination. We will separate from Indonesia because this is like a discrimination against non-Muslim. So then, then Jokowi needs to calculate uh, not only Ahok, the future of Ahok, but also the future of this country. Finally, I mean, are there broader insights we can draw from this Ahok affair about the state of Indonesian democracy at present and the position of non-Muslims and ethnic Chinese Indonesians within it? I think this is the test for Indonesian democracy, and we cannot skip this process. That's why I don't like using a political compromise or bowing to the pressure, because then we have unfinished business in Indonesia right now. Number one is, it's still unclear about relationship between religion and state. And this case also reveals that there is still unfinished business in terms of relationship between Muslim and Christians. And the unfinished business in terms of relationship between ethnic Chinese and indigenous. So these three issues come together with this issue. And then uh, this is a chance for Indonesia to learn how, how to become a major in, in, in political constitutional democracy. But if we skip this and we find a solutions from a compromise, post compromise or going to the pressure, then in the future it will come up again. Sure. Now, Nadia, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dev. Yeah, thank you very much. The day after we recorded this podcast, Indonesian police announced they had made Ahok a suspect in the blasphemy case against him. Although he will not be taken into custody for now, as detectives were split on whether his conduct merits charges, and as a gubernatorial candidate, he poses little risk of fleeing. Ahok has vowed to continue as a candidate for next February's election. This podcast featured Dr. Nadia Sio-Hosen, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Law at Monash University and Chair of the Advisory Board for the Australian-New Zealand branch of Nadatul Ulama. You can find Nadia Sio's book chapter in the new book Religion, Law and Intolerance in Indonesia, edited by Tim Lindsay and Helen Porsica and published in 2016 as part of the Routledge Law in Asia series. Look out for the next episode of Talking Indonesia on the 1st of December with my co-host Dr. Ken Setiawan. And as always, you can catch up on all 37 episodes to date at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or subscribe via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app to never miss an episode. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.